Our first reading this morning is from the uh, book of Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 to 38, and can be found on page 90 in the Pew Bibles. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die any more, because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, <coughs> the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. The first part of the reading is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, which can be found on page 4 in the Bible. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out in the, to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The second part of the reading is from Job chapter 19, verses 23 to 27, which can be found on page 498 in the Pew Bibles. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead, they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. The Soldier by Rupert Brooke If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by the sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, 
give somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. What will they think of me when I'm gone? Who will remember me? They say life goes on, but the reality for all of us eventually is that it doesn't. It comes to an end sooner or later, and then what's left? Some ashes to scatter, or a body to bury, some possessions to distribute, a reputation perhaps, or some achievements of note, conceivably children or grandchildren, or maybe just stories. So many stories to be told with tears and laughter by those who have known and loved us, saying to one another, do you remember when? Do you remember? Do you remember? We're in the season of remembrance at the moment, aren't we? Remember, remember the 5th of November. Today's and tomorrow's remembrance services and two minutes silences. And at such times, we particularly remember those who have been killed in war, those whose lives have come to a premature and violent end, leaving loved ones to grieve and cope. Last week, I paid a visit to the Air Force's memorial at Runnymede. Some of you may have been there. There are carved on the stone walls of the memorial thousands upon thousands of names, those who have died from the Air Forces in conflict. And I found the memorial to my maternal grandfather, Sergeant Frederick David King, Distinguished Flying Medal. A young man killed just a few weeks after his wedding day, leaving a widow yet to discover that she was pregnant with my mother, and also leaving a few medals that now sit in a case at my parents' house and one day will come to me, speaking to us from beyond the grave of his bravery and valour in the face of danger. And it matters to us that we remember the names, doesn't it? It matters that the stories and the people are not lost to us. This is one of the reasons why we have books of remembrance, keeping the person's name and memory alive. It's the reason we often mark a person's grave with a stone, with their name carved as a permanent record of the fact that they were once alive. But as anyone who has wandered through an old graveyard will know, eventually the stones weather and the names and dates fade. And books can be destroyed or lost, and even revered war memorials won't last eternally. Eventually, one day, Sergeant Fred King's name and memory will be lost. And as so many others, 
both before him and since, have also passed into obscurity, so will he. And what then? Who remembers? Who keeps the memory alive? What becomes of what was once a person? Such things were obviously preying on Job's mind, as we heard in our reading this morning. Uh, the next series of illustrations, by the way, are just kind of backgrounds to the sermon. They're, they're some of William Blake's fantastic illustrations from the book of Job. Um, Job cried out in our reading this morning, Oh, that my words were written down! Oh, that they were inscribed in a book! Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever! For those of you who haven't read the book of Job in a while, a brief recap may be useful. The book of Job is named after its protagonist, about whom we don't know a lot. He is, after all, a fictional character. But what we do know is this. He is an innocent man. And yet, despite his innocence, he suffers loss and pain through no fault of his own. As the dialogue of the book develops, with Job and his friends, the so-called Job's comforters, uh, discussing what it is that he might have done, to, if anything, to deserve such terrible torment in his life, Job starts to imagine a way in which he might go to trial with God, seeking to vindicate his righteousness, and perhaps also to obtain an acknowledgement of God's mistreatment of Job. In our passage for this morning, we meet Job in characteristically depressive mood, clearly not expecting to see his desired vindication before his death, and concerned that he will go to his grave unjustified. Just a few, couple of pages earlier in chapter 16, he has called on the earth not to let his murder at God's hand, as he sees it, go unavenged. He wants his innocent blood to continue crying out, arguing his vindication for all eternity. And in an echo of God's words to Cain after his murder of his brother Abel, Job expresses hope that the blood of the earth will continue to cry out from the ground. He says in Job 16, 18, O earth, do not cover my blood. Let my outcry find no resting place. Now this idea of shed blood crying out from the ground, attesting to the righteousness of those who have been unrighteously killed, is one which continues to have great resonance today. From Rupert Brooke's heart-rending assertion that in the event of his death in war, there will be some corner of a foreign field that is forever England, to the poppy fields of Flanders, to the mass graves of the Second World War concentration camps, to the more recent discoveries in Bosnia and Iraq and Syria, and I could go on, the blood of the slain cries out from the ground, and it shouts and screams to the world that those who lie here did not deserve to die in this way. And so Job contemplates his death. 
a righteous and innocent man who did not deserve to die like this. Job's anxious desire is that he should see God judge his case whilst he is still alive. But he doesn't, frankly, expect to be vindicated before his death. So, despite his conviction that in the end he will be judged innocent, he wants his case committed to permanent writing, because he knows that whilst his life may be fleeting and soon ended, the fact of his righteousness is an eternal truth. And his hope is that one day the record of his blamelessness will be attested before God and proven to be true. And so Job utters possibly the most famous words in the entire book and possibly also the most misunderstood. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. <laughs> Who on hearing this verse doesn't also hear the strains of Handel in the background? But despite its usage within the Christian tradition, Job's Redeemer, Job's Redeemer is not Jesus. And it isn't God either. Rather, Job's Redeemer is his protestation of his innocence. It is his righteousness itself that pleads his cause and will eventually secure his redemption. Job's redeemer isn't some heavenly being, rather it is his own declaration of innocence. To understand why this is the case, we need to understand a little bit about the Old Testament concept of redemption. The word translated as redeemer in many of our versions of the book of Job, can also equally be translated as vindicator, or even as champion. And in the Levitical law of the ancient Jews, a person's redeemer, or vindicator, or champion, was their nearest relative. So when a person died, their next of kin, their redeemer, would be expected to redeem their property for the family, buying it back to secure the family's inheritance. Or if a person was taken into slavery, then their next of kin, their redeemer, would be expected to redeem them from slavery by paying the price for their release. Or if a man died childless, the next of kin would be expected to marry the widow and father a child with her on behalf of the dead husband. We see this in the book of Ruth, famously, where the child is eventually given to Boaz. Everybody goes, see, look, he's got a child. So back to Naomi, but it's, it's the idea from Boaz. It's the idea of the person having a child on behalf of another to redeem their descendants. If a person was murdered, the next of kin would be expected to vindicate them by avenging their shed blood. And so we're back to death again. So when Job states his belief that his redeemer, that his vindicator, that his champion lives, liveth, he is objectifying his protestation of his innocence into an entity that has something of an existence of its own. His blood will cry out from the ground for all eternity. 
His deeds that are written in writing that never fades take on a character of their own. They become the eternal affidavit of his innocence. And the legal language continues, as Job states that his Redeemer will at the last stand upon the earth. Again, set aside the later Christian usage of this verse and go back into the ancient Jewish world of the book of Job. This isn't Jesus coming at the end of time. That might be what people have used it for down the line, but that's not what's going on here. In the ancient lawsuit trial, the last to rise was the winner of the dispute. The final speaker won the day. The successful voice was granted the last word. And Job believes that his blood, crying out from the ground, will at the last rise up to affirm his innocence and attest that his death was neither deserved nor sought. So what remains of a person when they're gone? What is remembered? Job's answer is that it is righteousness that endures eternally. <laughs> Bodies die. Possessions are redistributed. Children, if there are any, have a tendency to go their own way. Reputations and mighty deeds are easily sullied or forgotten. But a person's innocence says Job. That's a different story. Innocence from guilt is eternal and blameless deeds endure. And so we come to the woman with her seven husbands from Luke's Gospel. And again we find ourselves in this murky world of the kinsman redeemer laws of the ancient Jews. And once again we find ourselves grappling with the question of what remains of a person when they die. There was of you, there sometimes still is of you, but there was of you that the value of a person's life could be judged on whether they had managed to bring children into the world. So if a man died, leaving his widow still of childbearing age, that man's life could be redeemed if he had a brother who would take his widow and father a child with her on behalf of the now dead brother, so that the dead brother could live on through his descendants. Clearly this system is intensely problematic from a contemporary perspective. It raises huge issues for us surrounding the rights of the woman and her existence as a person in her own right, rather than as part of the estate of her husband. But within the worldview of the ancient Near East, it had a certain logical consistency. And it is this logic that the Sadducees are seeking to exploit by making their argument reductio ad absurdum about the one bride for seven brothers. Not the film. As the Sadducees sought to demonstrate what they believed was the irrationality of a belief in the afterlife. You see, it all hinges back around this question again, doesn't it? What happens when a person dies? What, if anything, remains of them? How, if at all, do they live beyond the grave? Is it through children, as the Leveret law implied? 
Or is it through reputation and good deeds, as the Sadducees believed? Or is it through some future resurrection to an afterlife, as the Sadducees very definitely did not believe? Jesus replying to the challenge of the Sadducees takes us to an eternal truth of being, which is that nothing good is ever lost. I'll say that again, as I said it this week to a recent widow. Nothing good is ever lost. Eternal life, if there is such a thing, is not a final salary pension scheme. You are not who you are in eternity, who you are at the point of your death. Nothing good is ever lost. In answer to the question of what remains of a person when they're dead, Jesus replies, Now, he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Descendants may die out, reputations and good deeds may be forgotten, gravestones may weather to illegibility and the writing in books may fade to nothing, but God remembers. Each moment, each moment is held safe by God. Each instant of life finds eternity within the love of God. Because God is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. It may well be that the greatest service we can pay to the dead is to remember their righteous deeds and to ensure that they are not forgotten. That is, after all, why we have Remembrance Sunday. To remember the dead in war and to ensure that the precious gift of their lives does not pass to obscurity. We remember their deaths, but we also hear their voices. Crying out to us from the ground, we hear their blood. And what do the voices of the dead say to us today? Tales of valour, stories of bravery, mentioned in dispatches, honour and loyalty, all of that, yes. But also because we are remembering those dead in war, stories of mercy and compassion and betrayal and suffering and terror and stories of so many lives lost. And the voice of Jesus echoing to us down the millennia assures us that each of these lives, remembered by us or not, was a life that has eternal value. Each soldier has worth, named or unknown, decorated officer or cannon fodder Tommy. And in our remembrance of them, their voices are heard once again, crying out with Job's voice from the ground for vindication, for redemption. And they live still. They live among us through our act of remembrance and in our memories as we keep their memory alive. 
Their stories matter to us because they keep us all human. And their blood cries out to us from the ground, protesting that they did not deserve to die like this. But they live still not just because we remember them. They live because God remembers them. Each life matters eternally to God, and nothing good is ever lost. And this is true for them, and it is true for us also. Whether we die a valiant death in the theatre of war, or in one of a million more prosaic ways, whether we die alone, at home, or cared for in hospital, or suddenly early, or peacefully at the end of a long life, however and whenever we die, we too are remembered by God. All the good life that we have lived is not lost at the moment of our passing, but is held safe for all eternity in the loving embrace of the God of love, who will not see even a flickering spark of life extinguished. This is the mystery of life eternal that Jesus speaks of in John's Gospel. This is the hope of resurrection in Christ Jesus, and it begins today. Eternity in each present moment. For God is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive.